Hello, in this special episode recorded live at the University of Liverpool's first ever change symposium, we chat with Dominic Venture, Emma Carter-Brown and Jennifer Davies about the key elements to creating sustainable, long-lasting change. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Dom, Emma and Jennifer. Uh, We're pleased to be speaking to you today. We're really delighted to hear about how we create sustainable change in the organisation. But before we get started, and we do this with every guest that we have on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you have arrived in the position that you're in today? So Dom, I'll start with you. Uh, Yeah, after studying at university, I joined the university's uh, workforce, and that was now 18 years ago. Um, So, yeah, never had, you know, never left the university. So I've worked across a number of departments in a number of roles. So my first position was in the careers and employability service, as it is now. Um, And then I joined student services and worked in disability support team for around 10 years. I then spent um, another large period in the School of Law and Social Justice across a number of roles before joining uh, my current department, which is the Strategic Change Department. Um, My role was Senior Business Partner. Um, The project that I joined um, was the Upgrade to Banner, um, and I was um, the Subject Matter Expert and Senior Business Partner for that project. And that's when um, I joined the department to become a fully-fledged project professional, um, and my current position is um, program manager, strategic change program manager. Brilliant. Man and boy, almost. <laughs> yeah. You don't look old enough to, to have a long service award, but you look old enough to get in there. Emma, over to you. Uh, so they say that um, everybody ends up in HE administration by accident, um, and I'm the exception that proves the rule. I actually chose it. Um, so after university, I worked my way up through customer service in the private sector, Um, ended up in a a leadership position, um, but wanted to be in um, an institution or a a sector that I felt like was making a difference rather than um, churning out manufacturing, which is what I was doing before. So I started as a a grade four administrative assistant at the University of Salford and worked my way up um, nine years at the University of Manchester um, in education and admissions, and then currently six years at the University of Liverpool, and I'm now Head of Education and Student Experience for the Faculty of Science and Engineering. Brilliant. I really get that bit about wanting to make a difference. I used to work for a company and the owner had five Ferraris in the back of the warehouse and I just thought, I should be doing something in the public sector, (laughs) not not making this guy have another Ferrari. Right, brilliant. (laughs) I, I completely understand that. Jen, over to you. So I actually did my undergrad in music here and um, after graduating was in a band for a bit, was signed to Universal Records, got dropped in 2015 and my friend who was running, wanted to start a fashion label was like, will you help me come on board and structure the business? Don't know why he asked me because at that point in time I didn't have a lot of experience doing that. Um, But I realised that I would be in charge of production and supply chain management and knew very little about it. So I came back to university, did my master's in operations and supply chain management. So at that time I was footing the door of academia and um, I guess putting theory into practice there and then. And we did pretty well. We secured contracts with Selfridges and had clients like Rihanna um, supported the brand. Did that and then I did very well in my master's and got offered to do a PhD. So I did a graduate teaching fellowship at the management school and looked at supply chain sustainability and industry 4.0 technologies or these disruptive technologies that are coming through. Love doing that. Found it an absolute nightmare doing PhD and business at the same time. So at the end of 2019, I 
sold my share in the business and I started got my PhD last year and started a full-time position at the management school teaching project management and digital business in July of last year wow so, yeah you are a change advocate. <laughs> yeah. You can't get much change more. Through change through and through. Yeah, than you've had in, since 2015. That's a lot. Yeah. Right. So we've called this discussion uh, creating a sustainable approach to change. But in simpler terms, what we're trying to understand is how to make change stick. So what things do we need to consider to ensure that we have a fighting chance to make change stick? And I'll just throw that open. Who wants to go first? Um, I Yeah, I, I think it's maybe a... a an obvious answer, but collaboration engagement like at every point of the project, I think, is key. Um, obviously, like the, the project needs to engage with the stakeholders. So it, it, in my particular projects that I've worked on, it's usually academic departments and faculties. So engaging at you know at the, on the outset of the project and having that buy-in, discussing what the aims of the project, discussing what the benefits, you know, the likely impact even at an early stage i think that's crucial to sort of success and then making the, the change sort of stick as it were so you're jen you're uh, looking after project management at the management school yeah. would you agree with that in terms of engagement at every point yeah 100 percent. i think it's about you know participation um there's that i think you know often when we look at academia it seems so theoretical and there's a, a phrase i love by kurt lewin there's nothing as practical as good theory and so i think when I, when I you know, went through your questions, there's a theory that I absolutely love called diffusion of innovations theory. Some of you might be familiar with it, but it was one theory that I was like, I see the practical application of that. And I think about it um, so much, but it's all about how new ideas, so innovations, diffuse through social systems. And I think that's key for instigating change because obviously it's all about trying to make new ideas stick. And he said, you've got to think about five different things. Firstly, and most importantly, what is the relative advantage or benefit of the change that you're trying to make? He said, if you don't have that, it's very difficult to make the change stick. And then there's four other things that just very briefly um, compatibility. So how compatible is the change with your existing processes, way of doing things? How complex is it for people to get to grips with? How easy is it to trial the change before fully committing to it? And then finally, how observable or visible is the change. So whenever I approach trying to make a change, I think about those five different things. And obviously, essentially, you're aiming for everything to be high apart from complexity, which should be low. Um, so I, yeah, that was one theory that I came across. I was like, I see how that plays out in practice. Brilliant. I think we all need to really get under the skin of that theory then. That yeah, sounds... it's an amazing book. Yeah. Everett, Everett Rogers is his name. And he was actually the son of a farmer. Um, and he's, you know, there's this whole field of diffusion scholars now that uh, that look at this stuff in lots of different um, sectors. Wow. So, yeah. I want to be a diffusion scholar. Uh, yeah, I want to be. A, um, that's why I'm striving for <laughs> <laughs> Emma, do you think there's some change initiatives that are more difficult to implement than others? I think it depends on the variables we've just been talking about. Mm. Um, so, yes, absolutely, of course, there are some changes that are more difficult than others. And sometimes it can depend on the on the source of the change or the innovation. Um, so if it's being driven um, from ground level, for example, um, as a response to a need um, within the people who are working in a certain area, that can make things easier. Um, in other contexts, it can make things more difficult if you're trying to make sure that the, the rigour and the psychological awareness that underpins change is delivered 
um, in, in a way that means it's going to be sustainable. Um, it also depends on the, the benefits and to whom those benefits are going to accrue. Um, so if there's an institutional high-level benefit, for example, but that isn't reflected um, with the, the workforce who are actually going to be delivering the process or the change at ground level, then that can make things more difficult. Um, but the one thing that most of these things, I think, share in common is the psychology of it. Yeah. Do you think then it's more difficult than, because you just talked about the change being sort of bottom up, do you think it's more difficult when an organisation and their senior team in an organisation decides upon some changes and then really struggles to make the case for those changes, even though actually at the bottom level, I suppose, it could make a huge difference to those jobs. But it's like making the case can be a really difficult thing. The thing that seems to happen, maybe it happens in higher education, um, but it definitely happened in local government when I was there. Do you, do you, do you find the same thing? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, And sometimes I think it's a a symptom of being overly focused on the process Mm. or the activity um, and not focused enough on the people who are working within it or are going to deliver it. Um, So if you can't, you you can have and should be having, of course, innovation and change that is of benefit at high strategic level to the institution, but is also going to, to benefit the people who are delivering a particular process or activity on the ground. If you can't articulate that um, to your stakeholders, and of course there's going to be different sets of stakeholders as well, it's not just going to be um, one group that, mm. that you need to win over, there's going to be different needs and different opinions within the cohorts of people you're dealing with. Um, but it's absolutely critical that you must be able to articulate what the benefits are um, for those stakeholders in what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dom, Jennifer, have you got any examples of change initiatives that seem to have been more difficult than others? I, I don't know about specific examples, but I think it's it, it, it does happen. Yeah. Uh, the size and scope of pro- each project will be different. Um, coming back to what Emma said, I think I think that's where sort of leadership and vision can kick in as well. The ability to articulate the benefits. I think you know it sounds a bit corny, but I think that does help then inspire people. If, you, if they can see the overall benefits to the institution, I think that's that that helps with the change. Um, yeah, I think in terms of complexity, the size and scope. Um, and yeah, sometimes time, sometimes the patience of the project, making sure people are aware that this is not going to be, you know, it's not a short-term project, or even sometimes the benefits will be realised almost after the project's complete. You're going to initiate a change and the benefits will be realised down the, down the line. That's, that's sometimes really difficult to articulate, but I think that's one of the jobs of leaders uh, to, try and, to try and communicate that effectively. Just picking up on, on what Dom says, so my research looks at sustainability and particularly leveraging disruptive technologies to try and you know help advance sustainable development. I think what you said, Dom, about if the benefits aren't immediately realised, what we call preventative innovations, essentially, you know, the changes that need to be made for something that we, you know, hope won't happen in the future, um, it can be very difficult. So that's what I come up against all the time in my research when I'm working with different companies is trying to get them to commit to um, more sustainable practices when the benefit might not be realised immediately. And often it conflicts with their shorter term financial goals. So it can be very difficult, I think, to make those kinds of changes. And But it's all about, like you said, Dom, you know, communicating that vision. Um, so you have to I guess appeal to, to people on a on a personal level as well, which I think goes back to what you were saying. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that point you just made about 
having patience and change is a, a really good point. Um, I don't have any patience and change. I mean, I'm one of those people that when I hear about something that's coming and I think it's a good idea, I want it now. And I really struggle with a long-term project. Like when people say, oh, yeah, in three or four years, we're going to have X, Y, Z as the benefits. And I'm like, three or four years? That's got to be now. We've identified a problem. Can't we, can't we like fast-track this? But it doesn't always work like that. So I guess... It's definitely a good thing to learn about for myself. Having patience and change um, is going to, well, it probably helped me in my own frustrations in, <laughs> in my career. Yeah. I mean, I think it obviously depends on, on the project, but um, certainly coming back to it, you said sometimes some of the projects are um, almost keeping up with, with what other um, institutions, you know, what other practices are. Yeah. And sometimes a, as you say, it's not an outright benefit. It's almost you have to make this change for various reasons. Um, and you might know always be, like I said, it, it's that hard bit of communicating what the benefits are or communicating why you're doing a project. We talked a bit about authors and, and, and models. Um, the author Mick Cope talks about the three Ps to sticky change, and they are purpose, passion, and persistence. We've probably got patience, actually, that we can, we can add into that. Um, do you think there's anything else that applies there? Definitely. Um, For a start, um, and I'm not going to rudely stick to the P's. Um, (laughs) It is an accident, believe me. Um, But partnership has to be in there. Um, So everything that we've been talking about in terms of collaboration and engagement um, and co-working with the different cohorts who are invested in or working on a change is absolutely critical. Um, And I'm going to cheat now. Empathy. (laughs) one of the things that I was was thinking about earlier when we were talking about varying difficulties of change is that something that's absolutely guaranteed to make change very difficult is if there's an element of fear Mm. for the stakeholders in the change that's being proposed anything that can be done to take that out of the equation and that's usually communication and engagement um, is going to make the the change process easier Um, and and this comes back to what I was saying about Ultimately, you almost have to be an amateur psychologist in order to be able to make change not only um, palatable and welcomed, um, but also something that that is going to stick um, and is going to be a a long-term change rather than a quick fix. Yeah, palatable, another good P. Palatable, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would add to that, um, which I think is a a sort of common theme that's emerged from what we've discussed so far, participation, you know, getting the buy-in, as you mentioned, Dom, initially, of everybody. And, you know, so it's not just like a surprise that's coming from top down. It feels like a collaborative effort in aligning those organisational goals with a sort of individual personal goals as well, I think can really help. I think we've, on the verge of creating our own model of change. <laughs> and there's, there's a paper in here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's probably up to the eight Ps or something like that. And then we'll have some sort of empathy at the end of it. Um, <laughs> it's often said that you can't change culture without changing the work. Now, this is a this is a saying that comes from systems thinking. Has anybody got any sort of interest, any knowledge of systems thinking? Very vague. Systems thinking is something where they'll, they'll fundamentally change the way people work to drive culture change in an organisation. So um, I was involved in some systems thinking work in a previous organisation and that's where that saying comes from. So in terms of you can't change the work or you can't change the culture without changing the work, have you seen this in your areas? Have you seen this factor into your into your workload and the associated maybe well-being issues that come along with with change? 
So it's a, it's a big question. It's a huge question. Um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the prime examples, I think, would be uh, if you're looking specifically at the culture of the University of Liverpool, for example, um, we want to do everything and we want to do all of it really well. Mm. Um, and that's frequently just not realistic. Um, there has to be an element of prioritisation. Do you see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that's a way in which you, you need to be able to facilitate changing the work that's done. Um, by introducing an element of that to create the capacity and the, the room for change. Um, and we're also, because of the institution we are and the sector that we operate in, we're very committee-driven, we're very meetings-driven, um, and that can detract from the capacity that we have to be able to engage in meaningful change. Um, so being able to look at even just how we operate and spend our day in order to be able to be change agents um, is, is something that's that's absolutely crucial. Otherwise, um, you you simply get mired down in the the everyday struggle to get through a difficult workload mm. without being able to to create that room for innovation and change. There's a, a professor in our department which kind of reminded me from what you said. Um, professor Jo Meehan, she's brilliant. Really look up to her. And she did a talk recently, and she <laughs> said, which was very refreshing to hear a professor say. This. She said, you know, I think we need to embrace being average <laughs> a bit more. You know, she said, there's this feeling that you have to be brilliant at everything all of the time, um, and that obviously has a trade-off, and it can be our, our sort of well-being, I guess. Um, so it was quite refreshing to hear somebody advocating for, you know, prioritisation, basically. Um, what are the things that actually it's all right for me not to be 110% at? Um, so yeah, I think that's quite a good message. Certainly, it was nice to hear someone quite senior in our department saying that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I hear the same message. Well, not that particular message, but I do hear a message around uh, the extremely high workload that both academics and professional services colleagues face. Mm. And that does have a detriment on their, their well-being. Um, and then when a change initiative comes along on, and it feels like it's almost on top of all of that, um, you know, how, how do we weave that? How do we make those two things talk to each other? Yeah. Sorry, I think during the project, obviously having impact assessments and see, and, and but again, coming back to communication and collaboration, yeah. speaking to the areas affected, because very rarely a project's going to gonna affect 100% of what somebody's doing or 100% of a department's role. So more often than not, it's, it's that conversation of, this is what the, this is what's likely to to be coming down the line in terms of the change without second guessing any of the natural steps of what uh, might fall out of the project. But speaking to the key stakeholders, I keep pointing at you, Emma. Sorry, because lots of the projects will will impact students' experience teams and speaking to experts in that area, saying this is the type of change that's coming, and, and also an open conversation about what else is happening. More often than not, especially in terms of you know, a point at which you might look to deliver change, you've got to factor in like the the key points of the academic cycle as part of that delivery. Are, are, are staff able to do basic things like come to training during this period? Yeah. Some fundamental, like really sort of operational steps. But I think in terms of delivering the project, having that impact assessment early on to talk about broadly what the size and scope is, but do it in a collaborative manner with the areas that are likely to be affected. I think that, again, I'm going to, 90% of my answer is going to be talking about collaboration and communication because I think, I do think it's a, a key, um, a, you know, a key, a key, you know, a key element of the success of a project. 
in your experience then, is, are there those two elements that you find really leads to long-lasting change? There's a story I tell in a pre- I've told in a previous podcast actually. Um, I can't remember, I read this and I can't remember where the book was, but um, they talk about organisational change and that being like a palm tree on an island and the hurricane's coming. And the, when the hurricane comes along, the palm tree... Uh, sort of bends and wanes and moves to the to the hurricane, and then as soon as the hurricane's passed, it returns its to its original position. And I think that's a really good analogy for how some people find themselves when change comes. They say, "No, I'm not doing that." They say, "They stay steadfast." Well, they might flex and bend and show some willing, but actually, once the change has gone, they re- they revert to their old behaviours. Do you think it's collaboration and communication that really stops that type of behaviour? Yeah, and through the course of that collaboration and communication, you want meet, you you want to have those meaningful conversations. So yeah. if there are, you know, if there are issues about work, workloads, work-life balance, adjusting the process, I think that naturally falls out of that. You know, more, it's really hard sometimes to build in that time for communication, but I think it's a key element um, of delivery of the projects. And as you say, that if a project is going to Coming back to your first or second question, if a project's going to stick, I think you need to sort of put those hard, hard yards in of, of having the conversations and having the meetings. So we've got two C's, multiple P's, <laughs> a sneaky E in there. Are there any other elements that we can think of that actually relate to making change sustainable? One thing I really like from um, John Cotter's eight-stage model for change is his notion of forming a powerful coalition. I really like that idea. And um, I think having, you know, as a leader, having those people that you know are going to kind of model the change that you want to see in the organisation. So at least, you know, if you don't, if, if, if it feels like getting the buy-in of everybody all at once is too much, then, you know, who do you have within your kind of immediate network that can help spread that message and, and kind of be an advocate for the change, I suppose, is quite key. Yeah, I think that uh, leadership with a strong ear actually is critical as well um, because one thing that I feel we do have particularly on the education side of the business which is really all I can speak to I guess is a golden thread of communication upwards through the organisation and down again um, so an, an example of that would be um, post the, the restrictions associated with the pandemic the way in which we deliver teaching and the expectations of our students for attendance. Um, I'm not trying to imply that we've addressed all of the the issues we need to consider around that, far from it. But what we do have um, is a a vocal but also listening leadership in education, um, which has a network to be able to push down discussions um, and trigger critical thinking um, about how we can learn from what's gone before so that we can take that learning and that change through into how we operate post-pandemic. So we've got a lot. There's definitely a paper coming. I'm, I'm not the author, but there's definitely a paper coming. Thank you for your con- your contributions. This is the Developing Practice podcast, and we always like to finish each podcast in the same way, where we ask each guest for a few take-home tips that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So if you do have a few tips and things that people can reflect on, what would they be? And Dom, I'll come to you first. Um, in terms of being, I suppose, receptive to change, I think fostering a good work-life balance is always, um, uh, yeah, I think allows 
you to be in the frame of mind to accept change as well, whether you're you know, part of delivering the change as part of a project, but also you know, being as part of the change. So having that balance, I think, gives you a good start. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Emma? Plan your change. Um, so don't just leap into um, an innovation that has come up from whatever source um, and start setting things up to work through it. Um, actually plan how you're going to engage, how you're going to get people on board, what the timing looks like, what the resources look like. Quite often um, in-house um, sort of parochial change projects that aren't big singing, all dancing, um, sponsored change projects um, can be um, not well thought through um, and they're much less likely to succeed. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so we've got work-life balance, uh, we've got plan your plan your change, Jennifer. Last word from you. Uh, well, I think my tip is literally go and read Diffusion of Innovations, the book by uh, Everett Rogers. It really changed the way I think about the world. Really, I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but it's true. Um, and it covers everything from the sort of thinking about the context for change. You know, as you mentioned, Emma. You know, as a leader, you kind of almost need to be a bit of an amateur psychologist. So it gives some very good structured ways of thinking about um, the social system in which you're trying to create change and then I think you know the the different categories of of innovation you know the way that we think about that I think is so essential for how we communicate the vision of, of the change that we're trying to make so yeah just read that book and there's a brilliant, he's sadly passed away in 2003, but there's some YouTube videos of him speaking, um, right. which is great that we have that kind of Brilliant. Material. Well, those links will be in the show notes. So, yeah, do feel free to click on that. Thank you. Thank you for that conversation. It's been really interesting. Thanks for, thanks for coming along. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.